0: Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health
1: Club, and enjoy the show.
0: Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula.
1: And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. For today's podcast, we sat down to have an amazing conversation with the University of Georgia professor, Dr. Ramya Pucha, to discuss her research on the intersection between race, gender, systems of oppression, and the politics of silence in the United States in general, and how this shows up in wellness spaces in particular. We unpack the ways in which we have come to often misuse the concept of self-care to avoid and turn away from difficult yet necessary conversations and the trauma caused when we allow ourselves to be silenced
0: in the face of oppressive interactions and practices. Lastly, we made sure to address what we have to do to navigate and recognize these realities while still holding space for our individual and collective racial healing. So taking a deep breath with us and press play.
1: Ramya, welcome to Pretty Mental.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be yeah,
0: here. Absolutely. We've been wanting to get you on for quite a while now. So we're super excited to finally be having this conversation with you. Yay. So we obviously have been reading up a lot on your work and learning about all the different intersectionality of the topics that you research. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit just so our listeners can begin to understand exactly what your line of research is and how it all comes together.
2: So my, my research is, I mean, I kind of follow like cultural movements. And I'm really curious about how people find meaning in the things that they do, like why things become popular and then sort of take on uh, cultural power, um, allow people to express gender identity, allow them to articulate their racial identity or their immigrant identity. So I, I often struggle to answer the question, like, what field do you say you belong to? Because I don't really know that I belong to anyone. But if I was to define it like really discreetly, I guess I would say cultural studies. But really, I'm just curious about how people make meaning in their world and how what they use to do that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I, I know that in your work, you you speak a lot to systems of oppression in cultural settings. Uh, both race, racial, and gendered ways in which oppression exists, um, which is super relevant to everything that's going on right now and everything that has always been going on <laughs> in modern society. If you're comfortable talking about what led you into this line of research and advocacy, super curious to learn a little more about that.
2: It's, a, it's kind of a long story, but I suppose... It's also a short story. My my parents are immigrants and uh, from India, and I am the only member of my family who was born in this country, so I have a slightly odd positioning in my own family system. In as much as I experienced the being born here and being raised here in ways that they did not, it's like their their identity was a bit more intact, you could say, with before they moved to this and. This country whereas for me I spent most of my life sort of negotiating these these two worlds that I lived in right and it's like every um, every immigrant story has some version of like the public life where they have to assimilate and the private life where their their family the domestic life where their family is eating food that is not considered normal or um, practicing a religion that isn't considered mainstream or you know so on and so forth. So my, my doctoral work actually emerges from that context because I was raised in a family that placed a really heavy emphasis on cultural production, especially women's cultural production through dance and music. And I was really curious about what it was about the Indian immigrant community, more so I think in some ways than any other immigrant community where they fixated on their girls learning dance in particular and performing dance. So I started asking questions about why that was and how the Indian dancer came to be the sort of iconicized like version of Indian womanhood and what that had to do with Indian migration after, um, the second world war and after immigration policy shifted in the us and the uk and canada so that was where i started and those questions just sort of spilled out into other spaces like how do indians understand themselves in the racial binary in the united states and like the short answer to that is they tend to identify or assimilate into whiteness like that's aspirational for them Um, which is obviously problematic and complicated and reproduces anti-Blackness in the South Asian community. So those sorts of questions about the racial binary um, kind of aligned with the fact that as a dancer, I felt very comfortable in yoga studios because it's a very similar body practice. It was like a space where what I already knew how to do um, also found purchase, but also like it was a communal space. I, I I didn't live near my my family anymore. I didn't have uh, the dance studio I grew up in anymore. I didn't have that community. So I found myself usually the only not white person in yoga studios, but I also had this training as an academic. So those questions were inevitable, I suppose, when I started to see a lot of the, the way that yoga studios kind of packaged and repackaged Indian culture to make it more palatable to a, a white consumer audience. Mm. And yeah, I suppose the rest is kind of history. Like I, 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 my friends and I often joke that like I can't go anywhere anymore because I like see things like, it's like the matrix. Like I can't help, but see <laughs> this is what's happening. <laughs> so um, it's like, I, I, I appreciate the critical thinking that, like my line of work has afforded me. But yeah, it's like when people talk about race issues in particular and they're like not everything is about that, but I'm like but it kind of is. Like it's it's an essential ingredient to how we do how we do anything in this world. So sorry, but yeah, that thing you're wondering is racist? It probably is. Yeah, no
0: absolutely. That's and I know that Valentina can definitely when you were saying like, I feel like I can't go anywhere, or my friends say I can't go anywhere anymore <laughs> without seeing the racialized, um what is it the racialized context that pops up and how um the whiteness is aspirational and the media kind of shows us that and suppresses other races, especially. I mean, in the United States is really salient just because there's so many different races essentially mixing together here and that's actually that's something that i always felt uh that probably started becoming it especially became salient for me when i was an undergraduate at uga and i started educating myself on these topics but especially now with the black lives movement getting like really salient and with a lot more people being willing to listen to the oppressive practices that take place in this country. I feel like there's a part of my psyche that feels like it has permission to fully be aware of everything now because I can talk about it. Versus like before, I, I've known these things, but I silenced myself in a lot of spaces and in a lot of ways because, and even kind of like numbing my own brain to these realities, because I felt like nobody would really even listen. So it would just become like an internal, stressful experience to even continue looking. Uh, but now that we are kind of being given permission to look and to speak, I, Valentina and I are both experiencing this really strongly where it's like, okay, now we can actually point out and allow ourselves to notice everywhere that racist practices are Imbued into the systems in which we exist.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can completely agree with that because you know racism, it slavery, slavery adapted. It adapted. Everyone always says it's it's gone. It it went away like a few hundred years ago, but no, it is one hundred percent adapted. And I remember growing up and trying to speak against racism. That was it was very clear to me. I remember having people around me say. You basically, in so many words, you can't have that opinion. You need, you need to learn how to adapt. This is just how people are. This is just how these specific cultures feel about these specific cultures, and you need to adapt because people are going to get tired of you speaking up. And I found myself actually adapting because no one would listen. No one would listen.
0: Yeah, and so it's a problem in the in the culture at large. And I find it particularly insidious when we take a look at the fact that it happens in wellness spaces. Mm -hmm. So in spaces that are supposed to be healing, um, because, you know, you look at, like, the prison industrial complex or, you know, the way that, you know, police officers, the police brutality aspect of things, and it's like, okay, like, that's tough, but that's also kind of what you expect, you know, when someone's carrying a gun, but for it to be happening in wellness spaces, it can be a lot more covert. And so it, it can, people might feel like, how would you say it? Like, like they're they're like, they could feel crazy for feeling that way.
2: Yes, absolutely. I feel like when, when I first started noticing this in yoga spaces and I mentioned it in particular in wellness spaces, specifically yoga spaces, and I mentioned it, I remember folks being like, "But this is a yoga studio. Like, how is that possible?" And it, it was almost that, because it was a like a sanctified space in a way. It had an inherent moral high ground, even though it had never, you know, no spaces, no, no space in our world is somehow um, a part or is outside of of these systems. And I, I noticed it. I mean, it's not the same, but I noticed it recently in my in my very like, you know, blue dot neighborhood in Athens, where I mentioned like a racist act that I had experienced to one of my neighbors, and they're like, "What here?" And those moments are always so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> like, As hell. I. I'm, I just, honestly, I've gotten to a point where when a white person does that, where they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Like you and I are like, you're going to get moved into this category where I don't really talk to you about this anymore because if you're like shocked about it, like you're just, you're not paying attention and and you don't like, I just, I can't, I can't fuck with that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just can't. Like every time, if I have to like get you past that feeling of shock and awe, mm mm-mm. I'm not going to talk to you about it. Like that's not, people seem to think that that's compassionate. It's not, it's disbelief. And that's not, that's not affirming in any way.
0: It actually feels invalidating. Very much. Yeah. Cause like, okay, so you're shocked by the suffering that I've been experiencing or the oppression that I've been experiencing every single day of my life. Privilege affords you that much detachment from the Uh, suffering minority groups. So Absolutely that completely makes sense and that is why that's actually something that's been coming up a lot where a lot of black women specifically as i've seen uh black wellness leaders like on instagram speaking to that specific thing and and i've also seen a lot of white allies kind of rising to the occasion and saying like okay It's not their responsibility to teach us anymore. Like it's time for us to educate ourselves. If we really want to be a part of this movement, if we really want to be a part of dismantling these systems of oppression, it's no longer the job of the people that are experiencing the oppression to continue to have to educate, right? Hold space for us in addition to having to hold space for their own healing as they navigate through these systems. So it's a lot. Um, I wanted to, in one of your most recent um, articles, you mentioned the politics of silence, which is kind of what we just alluded to in a little bit, and how in majority white spaces, silent you say silence is a civility that racism demands. Can you speak to that a little bit more?
2: Absolutely. Uh, it's not really my idea. I should say that idea comes from Black feminist thought, The idea, like the sense that, women's behavior especially white women's behavior when it is seen as um, domesticated or appropriate it is it is about like being quiet right it is about not not being disruptive and so like that is a gendered idea in this like first place but it's also a gendered idea in a white system and there have been black feminists who have argued like bell hooks for example who have argued that that is a that is a very that is a dominant concept in spaces that don't realize that there actually is a culture of protest there's a culture of a vocal womanhood in other parts of the world that is not uh, diminished or denigrated so in the u.s context though if you want to safely exist in majority white spaces you have to be quiet. Because to be loud is to be um, unruly, it is to be a problem, it is to be difficult, it's all the things that are the opposite of civility. So like a civil discourse, it requires that the person protest the right way, you know. So it, it, like, it indicates that there is a right way to disagree, and to talk about something that is unpleasant is equal to being like uncivil. Does that you that talk- kind of answer the question? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay.
1: Can you talk a bit about how that seeps into the wellness spaces?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I feel like wellness spaces produce this idea of – um control what you can, you know, like this, you are in charge of your thoughts and any type of negative interaction is seen as a personal, is seen as like a personal challenge. Like, you know, pick your battles. These are like all things that you often hear. And I will say, I have heard, uh, extend from like mindfulness discourse all the way into, um, Cognitive behavioral therapy, like these are things that you see across the spectrum to help people experience agency. But what ends up happening is when you Encourage folks to sit with their feelings, especially when those folks exist in differential power spaces. So like if a person of color is dealing with something and dealing with something in a majority white space for them to sit with that is not necessarily and sit with it quietly, right? Which is sort of that silence and civility indicates is is really self-censorship. And I feel like that attitude has also been picked up by like sort of dominant white added, you know, dominant white outlooks when it comes to these sorts of conversations. And it leads to things like positive vibes only, or, you know, That's, you know, I don't, I can't deal with that negativity. Like it leads to ways to bypass actual accountability. And I think in many ways it teaches the opposite of relational ethics. Like having a difficult conversation means knowing how to have that conversation in a way that is healthy and avoiding it is not, I don't, I don't see that as a solution, but I feel like so much of mindfulness discourse requires people to just sidestep difficult conversations which is sort of the larger point in that article you were pointing to it's i feel like it's the logic of self-care and it, it gets elevated into this discourse of virtue when it's actually avoidance like it's just a repackaged avoidance
0: yeah so that the self-care conversation is actually really interesting and important Right. And you actually mentioned, you, you speak to it as that it can, you know, you're saying it's repackaged avoidance and how it also often is narcissism undercover, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah. And that's hard, you know, like I, I, I struggle with like how, how to, how to teach, how to help people have conversations when they're in a place when they can have them right because that is part of caring for themselves is knowing when they're in a space where they can have a conversation productively versus almost like hiding behind this idea of of needing needing self-care as a manner of like shutting things down and that is that is a dysfunction i've started to see more and more especially with the way that these conversations have risen to like political levels that I, I mean, frankly, I look around right now and I see the conversation about Black Lives Matter becoming normalized. And I'm just shocked. I didn't think I would ever see the day that it would be uh, part of our everyday conversation. But I feel like even despite that there's these new, there's these new opportunities to sort of claim self care in the face of discomfort that like, is it discomfort because you don't have the tools or is it discomfort because you feel embarrassed that you might have done something that hurt someone else but that's that's the part like i feel i feel sensitive about saying something like self-care equals narcissism so i don't think it's quite that simple but i think when people are um hiding behind something that is that needs to be addressed and hopefully those things can be disentangled from each other
0: right? Well, as human beings, we have a tendency to want to put everything into a category that is easily digestible. And so when we learn a new concept or we learn something that could be helpful, like self-care, we have a tendency to take everything to the extreme, right? (laughs) And it's almost like we, as individuals and as a society, it seems that we have to take things to the extreme before we can find a balance with it. And when it comes to the topic of self-care it's important. right? it's important that we don't burn ourselves out. it's important that we don't overfunction. it's important that if we're not doing okay, that we take time to recharge before we can lean back out into the world. and at the same time, i have i have seen it be used a lot in the sense of like, oh, that person makes me uncomfortable. so part of my self-care is that like they need, to be, they need to be kicked out of my life. And there may come a point at which after you have tried to engage in communicating, you realize, okay, you know what? We're, it's actually more loving for us to walk away from each other and give each other the space to heal separately. Um, but it's not this blanket statement of you're negative, which could be like, you're just bringing up a conversation that makes me uncomfortable. So you're negative, so i actually, my self-care is that I need you away from my life. And when it is in that way, then it is narcissistic because as we've, we've spoken about in past podcasts, the way that I describe narcissism is that it is basically feeling so uncomfortable with other people's challenging emotions that you need to shut them down and silence them which is basically oppressing the other person. And that is narcissism because that's saying like, my comfort comes before your feelings. And we're social beings. We are co-creating a world together and just throwing out people left and right because they kind of make you uncomfortable is significantly
2: narcissistic. That definition is incredible. And reminds me of so many conversations I've had with white folks. <laughs> I won't just say white women. It's mostly been like failed relationships with white women. But what you're describing is, yeah, it really hits the nail on the head.
1: It reminds me of one of the text exchanges that was in, um, in one, of your, one of your articles, one of your um, pieces. I forget what the exact title was, but basically you try to bring up to one of your friends why something that she said was hurtful for you and racist and she just couldn't believe that you were that you would someone would ever say something like that about herself
2: yeah I actually I spent um I spent this morning working on a diagram of that to to connect it to this idea that when those conversations happen and when the person who is confronted with racist, their racist speech has to look at it. And that threat to their sense of self is just, you know, it's it's been theorized as white fragility, of course. And that's something that I feel like has entered the, the vernacular. But I mean, I've actually started to wonder in the work that I've been doing, almost like thinking about it like an immune system that has never ever had to experience an attack. You know, like, if an immune system has never been exposed to a threat, then it never develops any sorts of resilience. And I'm sure there's like a better metaphor for this that uh, in psychology, I mean, around the ego and like how people cannot deal with the idea that they might've done something wrong. And I know Bernie Brown's talk about it, like shame resilience, like that's one thing, but I think this is like a, a degree even beyond that. And I know in the conversation that you're referring to, um, you know, that was one of my best friends. Like, I couldn't believe that rather than being like, wow, I fucked up, it turned into how dare you. And I think those moments to me, more than anything, demonstrate like how white folks see themselves in relation to me. Like that is I am. I have a conditional acceptance in their life, as long as I remain grateful and in my place. And the minute I challenge that, I'm out. And if you can't be real with someone, it's probably not a real friendship, you know? And like I was young with both of these relationships that I talk about in that piece. So I've I'm significantly older now and I've learned more now, but like we hang on to those people for a lot longer than we should sometimes. And I will say, since working on that piece and since really like processing that dynamic, that trauma, I hold much better boundaries in the rest of my life now. Like when people fuck up with me, I gently but firmly tell them. And if they can't respond to that in a in a compassionate way, then I don't need that. And like if that's that's their journey, right? That's that's the point at which you give somebody an opportunity to try and learn about how they are part of this problem because we are all part of this problem. None of us is excused from this work. And if that's not something that they feel like they can do, it's kind of like you said, the loving thing is to to maybe not try and do it right now. And hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, I'm hoping that these women will pick up their heads and look around like outside and look at the world and the conversation that's happening and they'll think of me and they'll think of what they did. Maybe that's a little optimistic, but
1: you know yeah I feel like there's so many directions we could go in with what you just said on boundaries, and then also what also what came up for me was, you know, your friend being so offended that she could potentially have said something racist is it's people are so afraid of that term because they believe, oh my God, you're basically equating me with someone who lynches black people. And it's like we've that's where we have to really and this is what we're trying to do with our podcast is solidify the fact that this is. Our system exists because of racism. If our system was a tree, racism would be the roots. You can't separate them. So when people you know and if you're ever confronted, and I'm speaking to our listeners here, it's we got we have to listen, and even us if we're ever confronted, we have to listen. We have to listen because we need to know better to do better. And we need to understand that even if we don't consider ourselves a racist person, we live in a very racist system. So it infiltrates everywhere, everywhere.
0: Yeah. The systems of oppression. I was listening to um, the Balanced Blonde podcast and she was interviewing Rachel Ricketts. And Mm -hmm. she put this in such a way that I hadn't really thought of it before. And I'm like, that is that's it. Like that's, that's something we all need to recognize. And maybe if we can recognize this and we can stop being so sensitive about it, but it's basically the reality that we are all in one, everybody in one way or another is oppressed. And in one way or another is the oppressor. All of us Mm -hmm. just by virtue of human dynamics and we have, and it would be very helpful for the advancement of our species if we can open up to that and not be so scared of like, okay, like I have certain privileges, you know, Um, maybe being lean, being lean is, it puts you in a certain privilege in this society, just because of the way that like body shapes have also been, um, and you speak to that, you speak to the body in your work a lot too, but in the way that like body shapes have been um, glorified. Glorified, yeah. Like leanness over certain, over thickness or whatever the case. Being able-bodied. Being able-bodied. Being a straight woman. Uh, there's
1: layers to it. That ho- Hopefully this what this conversation is doing right now that's happening in our society will start dismantling all of that, you know? Or not dismantling, Um, digging deep into what all of that means. So we all see our, our different privileges and that we in one way or another, do you have a leg up on a lot of people?
2: I feel like, you know, when I'm listening to y'all talk about how you can both oppress and be oppressed, I feel like the ability to sort of allow that tension to exist in all of our lives, I think the reason that that gets so challenging in the, at least in the US context, which is the one I, I feel like I could speak the most to, I think part of it is because there's just this incredible pressure placed on people to see themselves as um, success stories of their own making. Mm -hmm. So like on the one hand, it's the whole bootstrap thing that's just so like baked into like the way that people understand their own merit and their own like self-worth. But then on top of it, there's this new thing, which I've started to be very troubled by, but also it's everywhere. Like the idea that like victimhood, and I say this, I think at one point in the silencing piece, like victimhood is now seen as a position of power. So like, if you claim your victimhood status, you can shut everybody else up around you. And that's, I don't really know when that started, but it has definitely become increasingly like the manner by which people are able to, the manner by which people are able to play really fast and loose with identity politics. And like, it also makes it very, I think, dangerously easy to assume that like all black folks share a a particular political voice on, you know, say an issue that concerns race. Like I can tell you right now that there is no monolith when it comes to to any community's way of looking at any topic. And one of the most enduring forms of racism is the idea that all black people have the same political commitments or all Indians have the same political commitments or all, you know, and pick the group. The only people who really get to be individuals with like autonomy and agency appear to be white folks. Like they don't have to be lumped into a group and like vote as a block or think as a block. And like, I just, I wonder often if like the ability to talk about oppression as just the nature of like individualism and power and the fact that it's human nature, like it's not like it's something specific to one system but the ability for that system to be codified and baked into our laws and our systems, that's where, you know, like, I, I just wonder sometimes if the conversation about oppression can make it past the point of seeing both the individual acts and the systemic acts because they're not they're they're related, but in many ways they're two different conversations you know mm.
0: yeah, as you're speaking about the myth of meritocracy, which is you know the American dream that whatever you want to accomplish in this. In, in the United States, you can accomplish if you set your mind to it. I can definitely see how recognizing that you have advantages, um, you know, the ways in which you are the oppressor, can be extremely troubling if you believe that myth, because then that means that, like, that could challenge the idea that you didn't really, and not to discredit anybody from saying that, like, they worked really hard to accomplish whatever they did accomplish, but that fear of recognizing that we have advantages or that we have privileges is what gets us silencing others. And that doesn't move the conversation forward and it doesn't make us into more of a peaceful community, um, into more of a collaborative community. And actually what it brings up for me, is something that I've thought about recently, and it's actually, I've thought about this before, but, and this comes up a lot, speaking to wellness circles is the idea of like manifestation and that you create your own reality. And I, I, I was allowing myself to really go down this line of thinking now that I'm like, okay, people are finally going to listen. And I'm like, even this idea that you create your own reality, it's so oppressive. It, it, it's saying like, well, first of all, let me say, I don't believe that you create your own reality now. I believe that we create our own reality. All of us as a collective, we are co-creating this reality It is not your individual um, strength of consciousness that is creating your individual reality. And that's why you have these privileges. It's, we are all doing this together. And the way that I would challenge that is like, are we, would we really go to a child that's starving in a third world country and tell it, and tell them that if they think positively enough, they can change this? Like, who's going to, you know, how can we buy into that? That's another aspect of this conversation that I hope we all start challenging because as we continue to perpetuate this myth of like manifestation and creating your own reality as an individual set apart from the context within which you exist, we're really oppressing the reality of other people. And it's also double victimization in a sense, because it's saying like, oh, no, not only are you living in a system that oppresses you, but actually you're still experiencing that oppression. It's because you're not thinking positively enough so is actually something wrong with you i actually
2: i have um i have a colleague mentor i should say i call her my i call her my academic fairy godmother <laughs> and we were talking about this like a very similar related issue around the idea of internalized depression and she was saying she doesn't believe in it and i was like okay tell me more and she made a very convincing argument, and I've, I've really sort of changed the way I think about these things. Because right, the idea about changing the way you think about something is also related to this idea that people of color in this country experience internalized oppression or internalized racism, which is different than the kinds of internalized racism that, say, white folks might have, which is like an implicit bias, right? which I think is a different category, but somehow is related. I haven't worked that part out yet. But my friend's argument was that if we sit here and we say that there is internalized oppression for people of color, then what we're saying is we're blaming them. We're blaming them for not thinking that they should be equal. And she's like, and I just can't get behind that. She's like, I'm not going to blame myself for the systems that exist and that have, have, have allowed this world to remain inequitable. She's like, I'm not gonna buy that. And I'm also not gonna give white folks this pass that they have some sort of internalized bias that they, it's like in their DNA and they can't do anything about it. And this is why like, I, and I, I struggle with this because what it suggests is that we can never, we can never really say anything to the fact that people might in the privacy of their home continue to use the n-word continue to say things like black on black crime right continue to feed the rhetoric around racism that means that when people are left with their own thoughts and they think a bunch of racist shit we're, we don't know about it but we're not supposed to try and dismantle that all we're supposed to focus on is what they say and do in public and if there are consequences for what they say and do in public then arguably that should be enough to eventually I don't know. It seems really punitive to me, which is the part I can't really figure out. Like if we can only assess people by what they do in public, we can never really address the things they think in private. Then I don't know. I I don't actually know that we we get past what you're saying, which is blaming this child for being impoverished and not having anything to eat because they, they don't have the right mental state to like manifest food, I guess, is the logical extension of that. (laughs) But, and it's all these things where it's like, we live in a world where, when we talk about racism, there are material realities to that. And there are material realities to who has access to clean water and who has access to, um, you know, a to to like to nutritious food and like all you know all of these things that compound but by the time we're having a conversation about it by the time we see it it's the state it's the police as agents of the state behaving in a dehumanizing manner towards you know a black person right like that's like If there's an iceberg and there's the part you can see, that's the part we see. Mm. All that other stuff we can't see that's underneath the water, that's the stuff we're talking about.
1: You mentioned in one of your articles about the coddling of whiteness. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means?
2: Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been working through that myself. What I mean is that there is... And I will speak for myself here. There is a severe discomfort for people of color who are often, you know, in the like physical minority. Like, there's just not as many of us, right? In a in a faculty meeting, in my case, or at an event, you know, a social event. And in those moments, because we are in the minority in numbers, and also in the minority in thinking and viewpoint, there tends to be this fear it goes into conversations that might actually challenge the white racial frame. So what I mean by coddling is, and I, I, I catch myself doing it all the time, you know, like with that neighbor where I'm like, Oh, you're not that bad. Like you're not one of the bad ones. Like, And it's all this like emotional like gymnastics that we do to make white feet, white folks feel safe. And like, they're okay and they're not one of the bad ones or whatever it is. But even otherwise, even when you are having a conversation with like an egregious example, you're still in a position where you have to frame everything and package everything in a way that is digestible to this white person who probably has no idea what you're talking about because this is not something that they experience personally. And so coddling of whiteness is A direct result of the fact that we live in a white racial frame it is a world that looks at things through a white person's eyes sees sees the world through a white person's eyes and even like when when w.e du bois talked about double consciousness this is a version of what he was talking about he had to be aware of the fact that a white person might see something and see it a certain way and he had to be able to like speak to that language and speak to that knowledge in order to accomplish a communicative you know an act of communication so Mm -hmm. coddling of whiteness is just constantly reaffirming the white racial frame in order to like help a white person understand but only on their terms and in a way that doesn't challenge them emotionally because then they can't handle that and they can't be part of the conversation anymore Mm
1: -hmm. that's so real it's so real it's exhausting there's there's (laughs) so much and we've been talking about it in some of our other podcasts about how There's so much narcissism Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and probably the world. And that goes hand in hand, coddling of whiteness with narcissism. Because you have to, in order to get your point across to someone who feels so threatened and like you're attacking them, just for bringing up a point that might make them a little bit uncomfortable, they cannot sit with their discomfort. So you have to tiptoe around them and you have to do emotional gymnastics, like you said, in order to even get your point across. And that's really hard. That's really hard for me.
0: <laughs> She's <laughs> not, she, Valentina, it does <laughs> not align with her temperament. <laughs> it's really hard for me. She's very direct. I'm very direct. Awesome. But it's hard because.
1: I do see a little bit of benefit in,
0: I would say Paula is better at being, like diplomacy, I think I would call it. It's what you were saying. You have to understand the conscious, when you're not the person in a position of power, it's actually in your best interest, quote unquote, to understand the consciousness of the person in the position of power. So you can speak to that consciousness in such a way that you can get them to understand yours. So it is mental gymnastics.
1: And I believe it. I mean, I feel like that's such an intelligent thing. You know, we've definitely been in her and I together in a conversation with other people where immediately I feel like the fire, like the steam coming out of my ears, my ear holes and eye sockets. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, and I, I don't unleash. I do like take a, a step back, but I'm like, you see the problem with that. Like, I'll be very direct. I'm like, do you, do you hear what you're saying and the perspective that you're coming from? But I, I do see that when Paula speaks when in a more like calm way and people listen, they mm-hmm. listen more than when there's any kind of anger. But I then you have to water yourself down in order for people to listen.
2: Like where is the, where is the line there? I will say that early on in my work on um, when it came to yoga in particular, I realized who my audience was. And I got this a lot. Like I everyone I talked to was like, you're going to need to say this in a way that the white ladies can hear you. And like, you need to keep your audience and like, you know, they're not going to be able to hear you. If I just, you know, like I kept thinking of that famous Audre Lorde quote where she was like, is it like, is it really the manner of my speech that is difficult for you? Or is it the fact that what I'm saying is going to require you to change your life? I'm not, I'm not quoting it precisely right now, but it's a great quote and I can send it to you after. And like, I don't know you know like i i was talking to a mentor of mine the other day and i was telling her like how i was working on this thing which is sort of a version of that last piece you were referring to i'm actually turning it into like a a visual guide where i talk about like white silence and how it uses darvo usually so like the did i attack reverse victim and offender so it's like a kind of gaslighting that gets really repurposed for conversations about race and i think in particular it is a version of white fragility if you will so if you try to talk to somebody about how they did something racist they will deny that they did that or that was their intention usually that's what shows up the most um, and then they'll attack you how dare you accuse me of being racist and then they'll reverse victim and offender And I was working on this diagram because I feel like it needs to be visualized so people can see how these things like overlap like a venn diagram almost and I was telling my my mentor about it and she said you know I just I don't want to explain stuff to white people anymore they're not my audience that's not who I write for and I was like I feel that like I want to I want to be able I want to get to a point in my career where I'm not writing for them anymore like that's not my my goal is not to necessarily educate them but then I'm an educator so then I realize I need to like slow my role because I do actually have to educate them mm-hmm. <laughs> job so but like it's this idea that any person of color who even tries to have these conversations has committed to some sort of centering of whiteness if they're having them with a white person and it's like what you said about that kind the the form of narcissism that is the most normalized in these conversations is that white people's feelings matter more than yours. Their sense of discomfort, like telling somebody that they hurt you is such a risk because they're going to hurt you again because you told them that you were hurt.
0: <laughs> You're opening yourself up to further invalidation if it's somebody that's not open, which is an extension yeah. of the abuse, right?
2: Precisely. So and like like, that, that's hard. I will say that since that moment, that led to that friend, those both of those friends, sort of gaslighting me into oblivion, I have had to learn how to have those conversations without being super terrified. But also it's like, if I can't have this conversation with you, I don't know that I, I think I need to know that. So I'm gonna take this risk, I'm going to tell you how I feel about something and I'm gonna find out who you are. Like I'm gonna find out if you are willing to go like if you love me, like if you actually are willing to be in this conversation, in this relationship with me in a way that allows me to not have to constantly self-censor. And I'll be, I'm very proud to say I've done it recently with one of my best friends, Julia, and it was scary as fuck and it went great. So shout out to Julia. <laughs>
0: like she- Oh, Julia. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, that's the only way that you can, in uh, in psychology, we would call it a corrective emotional experience, which is really the best way to, it's it's the only real way to heal trauma. It's that like you have to give yourself, which is, it's terrifying, right? Because you have to kind of put yourself out there if you're going to give yourself the opportunity to experience something different. So if like before you were always silenced when you brought this up, it creates a trauma where you feel like you can't speak your voice, uh, you can't speak your truth. And and that starts causing depression, you know, because like what is depression? Depression is suppression. It starts causing anxiety. You don't feel safe in spaces. But if you continue to like reinforce that silence within yourself, you're just internalizing the trauma, which could, you know, you could say it's a form of internalized depression. And the only way to transcend it is to somehow pull out from deep within your soul, (laughs) the courage to lean into that conversation again and to give yourself the opportunity to see if like this time will be different. Right. So Julia giving you a different response in that, in that moment, that's an opportunity for immense healing. Cause it's like, okay, you know what? Like, wow, I actually can be myself. And, And then you start, we all start learning that like, okay, it's not just me. Like there's nothing wrong with me for speaking my truth. It's just Maybe I don't need to keep engaging with people that aren't ready to hear my truth, you know. And yeah. that's how the trauma starts to heal.
2: I I have so many reactions to what you just said, but they're going too fast in my head. So one mm. one thing is, I could tell that by taking that stand with um with one of my friends who I've known for a really long time and who. Was really like an emotional anchor in many ways for me. So like when I when that went sideways, and when I when I told her the truth, and she sort of you know decided she was done with the relationship, it it was almost like pruning to go back to the tree metaphor. It was like pruning something, or maybe even just like replanting the tree in better soil, so the roots could actually be healthier. I don't know if this metaphor is working. Forgive me but that failure also allowed something to finally be removed that was toxic and was unhealthy and has allowed me to have better habits in my in my other relationships now like it has paid dividends across my life across my professional and personal life and i was so scared to be to do it for like for years and years and years so i guess this is a long way of saying like realizing that Not only does it, um, when I said earlier that I thought my colleague had a complicated notion of uh, internalized oppression, I think the reason I couldn't get behind the idea that that doesn't exist is because what we're really talking about is trauma. And oppression and trauma have to be like, those those things are connected, but they're not the same. So thank you for that. You helped me work through that in my head today. Yeah. And
0: internalized oppression, as I understand it is when we take the oppression of the world around us and allow it to become our identity, right. When other people, it's the same thing. And like abusive relationships, I see it from, from my mindset of, um, you know, my mental health uh, frame of mind. I see all of these things that are happening in our society of oppression. And I see it through the, through the lens of Darbo essentially, I see it through the lens of emotional abuse and it just, it takes courage. It just, it just takes courage. Cause the other question we were going to ask you is like, okay, how can we make sure that we don't do the white coddling thing in, in wellness spaces or Mm -hmm. in in any space? Mm
2: -hmm. That is a really good question. Um, To the best of my ability, I will try to answer. I think the thing that I have started doing is, at the very least, um, when somebody does something that requires maybe some interruption, if you will, like if somebody does or says something that is racist, and I have that moment of like, ah, do I say something? <laughs> like, do I, do I, do I go down this road or do I not? Um, I feel like step one, not every conversation needs to be a long conversation. I have learned to say, what you just said, was was problematic, pick a word, right? Like pick a word to sort of name it. And you don't necessarily have to go into more detail after that. You could be like, I, right now, I don't really think that I'm the right person, especially if you don't feel like you can, I should start there. If you feel like it's not safe for you to have that conversation, you can just name the problem and be like, that's, that's enough for right now. But at least you're not excusing it. You know, you're know. you not letting it sort of flip by you as if nothing happened. But I think if you are in a conversation and that is something that you're gonna get into, that's where it gets more challenging because that's when the Darvok is possible, right? Like that's where you're gonna have to like shadow box at the person across from you that you're trying to, to, to help in that moment is not willing to enter into that conversation. I think in those moments, that's, again, when you have to stop. Like that's coddling and excusing are not the same thing. And identifying that there's a problem may be enough to start the process. Beyond that, I mean, I think just knowing that you, especially wherever you are in your own, like racial healing, if, if it's too much then you don't have to do it like i will say that one of the best things i've done for myself is i have found i have a friend emily who is fierce as fuck. and if i am dealing with a particularly like horrifying situation of white fragility because <laughs> she, she calls it she calls it like tag a white person. It's not really like that, but it kind of is. I literally just oh, tag, tag her <laughs> in. Like I tag her in like it's a game, like like we're like we're playing hockey and like I'm switching off and she's switching in. And she handles it. And like having people like that in your corner is is there's just I mean, it's taken me a long time to build those sorts of relationships. But she has the language, she has um the desire to be part of the solution and she does not play that white savior shit like she doesn't shit like she's aware of the fact that she is stepping in and using her body and her ability as a shield but she's also very clear about like hey here's how you fucked up here's how you centered your white feelings here's how you did darvo like she will break it down and she actually did that with this with this friendship i'm i'm referring to Which fell apart. She she took that email, and she responded to it, and it was epic. But it helped me see it for myself, and like it it did not allow that coddling to happen. But that's what I'm saying. Like finding a way to do that is important, but it might look a different way. It might not be you. Like it might not be you who have to stay there and have this conversation. It might mean you part of not coddling is handing it off to somebody who can educate with, um, compassion, but you know, with clarity and that's the solution that has worked for me. We all need an Emily in those who, in our, in our corner like what, is what, what I would
0: say. I feel like me and Emily would get along. I'm like, what sign is
2: Emily? <laughs> that's a good question. Oh, Emily's a fire sign. She an Aries? <laughs> or a Leo? I'm a Leo. So are you? Are you? So I, am I. I am. She's a Leo.
1: Paula <laughs> yeah. is yeah that's amazing i'm an aries Got <laughs> enough yeah. fire to to feed anything
0: yeah i love how you said you know just part of not coddling and how you how you spoke to recognizing that that doesn't it doesn't have to be a long conversation Yeah, because part of allowing ourselves to kind of be victimized quote unquote is Putting ourselves in a position to over-explain and over-explain and over-explain when somebody is resistant to even seeing our point of view. So if we give ourselves permission to just drop a one-liner if we need to, for the that that can be a huge part of our own healing because that also requires that we lean into our fear of Making other people uncomfortable, our fear of other people being upset with us, and the ways in which we are socialized into people pleasing, in particularly women. I'm, but you know, I'm not saying men experience it too, but in particularly women in our culture, and actually throughout the world, I'm not sure I've seen a culture that doesn't do this yet. Uh, that women are socialized into people pleasing because, and any human in general, really, when you're a child your survival kind of depends on making sure that you please the adults. So if you do anything that challenges that, you get punished. So very early on, we learned that people-pleasing is a survival strategy. And then we grow up and we're like, oh, wow, if I continue to people-please, I'm letting people step all over my boundaries. I'm not allowing myself to heal. I'm silencing myself. I'm inadvertently being a part of continuing these systems of oppression against me or against others. And so now I need to, if I want to lean into this healing, I have to open up to holding space for the discomfort that I will feel when I challenge somebody and make somebody else uncomfortable. And I have to start learning that like, it's okay for me to be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of someone being upset with me and that it's not necessarily my responsibility to bring them out of that upsetness that, that they can also handle being in that emotion?
2: 150%. I was actually just um, thinking about this in the context of like something that my mother used to say, which is no is a complete sentence. And I did not like, she was raised as an only child and I'm the youngest, I'm the only daughter. And I've been thinking a lot about how like she just didn't give a fuck. Like I don't know how she, where she learned that. I was always convinced that it had something to do with growing up in India without this like complicated ecosystem of being the model minority shit. Like the stuff that I grew up with, where like I was supposed to be docile, right? Like the Indian kids were like the good kids. They were the good students. They never caused any trouble. Like all that nonsense that I'm I'm thinking informed the way that I people pleased. But also in like, at least in my family system, when you're, when you're the youngest or the younger child, you have a very different attachment habit to your family. And like the way you learn attachment and secure attachment is so different. Like I joke about it with my partner because we, we, have, we don't have kids, but we have two dogs now. You've heard the younger of the two just now. And I joke with him that like, I understand birth order, issues now because when we first got our older dog she was the center of our universe that dog was like leave me alone because we were constantly doing stuff for her and with her but the second one we're like ah here's some food like you know you'll be fine <laughs> it's it's so different like that the second usually a first child or an only child does not have attachment issues because they are hyper-parented and it makes sense to me on so many levels not least the fact that I was raised to to see myself as a performer. So I was raised on a stage where my entire identity was wrapped up in pleasing an audience, right? Like that's, that's how much of that had to be part of, you know, my personality and other women who were raised like me with these cultural values who externalize all of the validation that they might need and require. So like, if you place all of that in the context, of a black-white binary where Indian women are already positioned as these exoticized creatures, right? Like there's all of these like emotional mechanisms that we're supposed to, like we're, we're not supposed to be loud, we're not supposed to be like black women, we're supposed to be like the good, the good brown women in some way. Or we're also positioned in contrast to like the fiery Latina stereotype, right? Like all of these things work to tell women when and where they can't racialize women in particular when and where they can or cannot be um, inconvenient. And I think that like when, when you stop to pay attention to in which spaces people feel like they can push back and how that can go down and what they're comfortable with if it doesn't go the way they want it to, like all of that, everything you just said about like being okay with the fact that someone doesn't agree with you. There's a lot, there's a lot that we internalize when it comes to how we think a conversation should go and how comfortable we are with somebody not agreeing with us and when it comes to racism I mean it's for somebody to say I don't agree with you that for a white person to say to me that wasn't racist that's disagreement but it's also denial it's also
1: denial well (laughs) that's 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 a Shit that pisses me off <laughs> because when I'm in a conversation with someone and I, and I will point out what is problematic about their statement, they will go into oh no no, no, no no, but um for example, he should have never fought the cop and I'm like, Richard Brooks oh
0: in particular, we got into an argument the other day about this
1: he so that you, I mean, you know, that's <laughs> denial when someone is in straight denial of where we live, how we live, how black people are treated, how minorities are treated in contrast to white people, it is infuriating because, again, it just shows the level of privilege that you have. And it shows how willing to opt out of a conversation that impacts so many people. It shows how willing you are to just opt out of it. Where we need more white people, more non-black people to really to really learn how to sit with their discomfort and to almost invite discomfort in because that's that's what it's going to take at first in order for all of these conversations to really infiltrate the system. We're all going to have to really just swallow and take a bite of humble pie and say, you know what, like tell me what I don't know because I grew up and I'm going to have to relearn what I thought I, you know, I'm going to have to relearn where I live.
0: Yeah. And this brings me back actually to the W.E. Du Bois double consciousness topic, because mm. if you are in a position of power, you don't have to have a double consciousness. You yeah. can survive and actually thrive without really needing to understand the psychology or the experience of the people in minority uh, positions versus the people that are in minority positions. They they know so much about the consciousness of the person in a position of power because they need to, for their survival. So, I think that's a huge part of the message that we need to get across. It's like, to you, you don't see it, you know, because you've you've never had to understand that consciousness. So, for you to say like that's not racism, you're completely. You know, that's where the education maybe comes in, right? As 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 educators to say like, you're not going to see it because you have never your survival did not depend on exactly. being a witness to this consciousness. So don't it's important for people not to speak to it as if they have seen that consciousness and now are making being the judge and jury of it when in fact they don't even know what they're talking about because they haven't had to be a witness to that consciousness.
2: It's who I mean I had a conversation with my dad about this recently. It was in a slightly different context. We were talking about Caste identity in India, which is a whole thing, but it's a social hierarchy. And it's the same, I basically said the same thing to him. I was like, you never had to think about whether or not your caste identity would prevent you from having access to something. And that is what caste privilege looks like. So you could, you could, you could say the same thing in the US. You've never had to think about if the color of your skin might change the way somebody is changed like treating you. And that's that's what white privilege looks like. There's actually a fantastic article or it's like a it's like a list. It's kind of a classic now called the invisible knapsack of of white privilege. You might have seen it. But she actually talks about this and she says, you've never had to wonder if the color of your skin would participate in not getting approved for a home loan, not having to think about it in and of itself is, uh, it's a, it's how whiteness works. Like that is how it shapes our realities. Like when someone's an asshole to me and I'm like, are they being racist? Are they just being an asshole? A white person doesn't usually have to have that thought. Like they don't have to wonder, oh, what was the motivation behind this person being a jerk to me? What was the motivation behind them being disrespectful? Like the like the kaleidoscope that I have to mess with on a daily basis when I have to make decisions or interact with people and like judge their body language like are they actually going to treat me with respect I'm a woman I'm here by myself should I have brought my husband with me he's white passing like all of these things like it's that's not emotional gymnastics I don't know what that is it's an emotional. Triathlon, I don't know the Iron Man. Man. There you go. (laughs) We're We're taking it to new levels of
0: yeah. So exactly, (laughs) like if you've never had to try to decipher what is going on in the world because of your your color or your race or your ethnicity, then you are in no position to pass judgment on the people that have. You just can't. That's misinformed. It's like telling somebody how to treat an ailment when you've never gone to medical school.
2: I'm sure there's so many there's so many metaphors for this. I'm sure if we stopped to like make a list of all of the ways in which, but like what's fascinating about that is it just demonstrates yet again how whiteness will always center itself. Like that is a central mechanism is for white folks to then use the eye. Mm-hmm. And this is actually where it gets complicated, right? Because this is what we're taught to do in like dialectical behavior that like, you're taught to actually say i statements in order to like not speak for somebody else but then by doing that in power dynamics you then speak for somebody else you erase their experience if it doesn't match yours and that's where it gets confusing mm. like these are like in some cases yes it's good to do that in other cases here's how it doesn't work which i know in your profession that that is that's all that's layers of nuance that maybe like can only happen over time but it is there are paradoxes there are tensions there is not everything is consistent and like something that works in one situation may not work in another and I feel like that attitude of understanding how power dynamics shape social interactions is like the most missing part of this conversation because white folks have invisibilized their whiteness, which is a product of racism, and then allow that to become the mechanism by which they say, "Well, I have never, ex- I've never seen that person behave that way. They've always been a really great person to me," and then we're off. Yeah, so
0: right. So I think maybe the nuance is that, like, we focus so much in in our in the profession of like wellness and psychology and mental health therapy on emotional intelligence and we haven't talked about power dynamics there's been a big piece of the puzzle has been missing like emotional intelligence but without understanding power dynamics like you can't they go together and you know as i think about all this it's it's highly problematic because I went through a whole grad school education and mental health and we never really spoke about power dynamics to this extent. Like Nobody mentioned white privilege until I did in a class when like, different um, classmates started getting into an argument. I had to speak up because the professor wasn't in intervening. We get very um, digestible versions of education even in a, in a mental health context. And that's extremely problematic when you're actually gonna go out there, and you're going to serve a community that's a very diverse community. And if we never really talk about power dynamics and white privilege and white supremacy, and we're scared to bridge these conversations. We're not going to be able to move forward.
2: Yeah, that's a real, I mean, I like the way you package that. I think that makes a lot of sense because I think about it a lot in the context of like interpersonal dynamics and what it means to try and understand power in even interpersonal dynamics like like a conversation with a white friend for example i am aware of it i am aware that i i'm experiencing a power differential i have to challenge that in my own brain but like are they aware of all of that probably not because for most white people they don't have a race race is something everybody else has they don't have that and that's like i mean i would say step one that is, that is uh, the, new, the the neutralizing or the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like white is neutral? Yeah, the kind of like. standard race. Yeah. Like to be able to recognize that that is, that is part of the problem too, mm. um, that it is a construction and a, a racist construction. I feel like that's like step zero. I think a lot about this idea of emotional intelligence. And I say versions of this all the time to like people who are close to me, which is that people of color, like we've just, we have to speak like five languages just to get through our day. And we need to know how to, when people used to give Obama a tough time, you know, like when they saw him code switch, that used to be a, like, I don't think people recognize how many literacies folks have to have to exist in this world if they are not white. And I think about that sometimes in relation to the immigration policies that focus on English language ability. And like, there's just so, there's so many layers to what it means to be able to speak and be heard. And like how that plays out in so many different parts of our lives when it comes to being polite and civil, when we're talking about race, coddling whiteness, Like it's it reverberates across all of these conversations. And the truth to me has often been that when people like the joke around somebody being basic that's what it's a reference to as far as I'm concerned they just like they don't have to have those literacies and that's why basic became like a a shorthand for recognizing that you're talking to somebody who probably just has never had to learn these skills and so yeah I mean you could try to talk to them about like something very complicated but if they don't even know the alphabet like you're probably not going to get very far so that like part of like what it means to have no be a whole sentence or like to not allow coddling to enter our vernacular when we have anti-racist conversations to me also rec- means recognizing the literacy levels that people have and and like i know that there's a flip side to that which is that when black lives matter has now become a corporate slogan Sometimes literacy just means co-opting a movement for capitalist ends. So like the, the truth is somewhere in between there. So like you want people to have access to that language and you want that language to become normalized, but you don't want it to become so normalized that it's neutered, right? Like we still need a radical language to actually move our world forward. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. do Do you mean it? Are you actually – through and through really supporting this cause or or is it performative? That. Yeah, exactly. So much that.
1: So before we close out, I want to ask you how people can, and how people, how spaces in particular, how wellness spaces can begin to create more inclusive, more safe feeling environments where we're not white coddling.
2: Well, I mean, I think if there's anything that came out of like our last line of topics, it's that decentering the white racial frame has to at least be where we, recognizing that there is a white racial frame needs to be where we start. If we could start there, then we can maybe talk about respectability politics. We could talk about toxic negativity and bypassing. And then like so much of the wellness industry has centered on women's needs. That is an undeniable truth that women's medical needs are rarely, have rarely been met in this country. And the in the world. And like, if we can start to acknowledge that there's a gender dimension to this, maybe, maybe some of that consciousness can make its way to thinking about how race is another category. And like, we understand gender, like we understand that women want spaces where they feel safe and they feel cared for. So it shouldn't be that much of a leap to understand that if most of the world is made for men, most of the world is made for white men. That is what we mean by that. So like starting to shift the lens to see how that plays out, even in a space that's built for women, it means it's meant for white women. And maybe that can be a place to start that conversation.
1: Yeah. White, cisgendered women. First, we they have body to- <laughs> layers, <laughs> layers.
0: Yeah. Oh, first, man. we have to name it. That's it. As with everything. If we can't name it, we can't do anything about it. So- that's where we're at. And because this is a mental health podcast, we ask every guest at the very end of our conversation, what mental health means to them.
2: Well, uh, as somebody who has dealt with depression and anxiety, and um, has really come to terms with the fact that Y'all remember that terrible joke that I made the rounds a while ago, like before diagnosing yourself with depression, make sure you are not in fact surrounded by assholes. Mm-hmm. That's been a big piece of my story. <laughs> like Removing removing the, the suppression elements, as you put it, um, of my depression from my life. And so mental health for me has been about um, not judging how I feel, not judging what my body is telling me, like, Y- you know, like s- learning that when you're, when you are, your system is compromised, it's because it, it's, it's experiencing a threat, whether that's real or perceived and spending time understanding that has been, quite frankly, the journey of, of my, probably my thirties, I'll be 39 in a few weeks. So like understanding that piece of it but more than anything, I'm kind of, I'm a a bit, I'm a bit of an endorphin junkie. Like I can't, you're a fire sign girl. I I can't, (laughs) I'm totally, I'm like all of the terrible jokes about CrossFitters are true. Like I just, I just need to get that high. And like, I need to feel, I need to feel that in my body. And so that's a big piece of it for me. Um, there's so much more I could say, but I've had, I have had the incredible privilege of working with and being around people who really care about what it means to live a healthy life, for all of us to have a right to live that life. And it's part of the reason why I'm, I'm here today, because one of those people is a mutual friend. And I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for women of color in my life who have reminded me that you don't have to live like that. It doesn't have to be that way. It could be you could your needs can be met and you can find peace. And so that more than anything, to have to have a peaceful life has become a goal for me. And I I mean, I want that for others too. So Yeah, I, hope I that love kind that of answer.
0: answers. I do yeah. love that because especially at the you know, at the tail end of the conversation we've been we've been having, especially if you're a minority, a person of color, black a big part of mental health is going to be making sure that you're surrounded and surrounding yourself by people that are willing to validate your experience.
2: It's so important. I I spent too much of my life trying to make white folks comfortable around me. And at some point, for lots of reasons, um, I think primarily my education, I started to realize that it didn't have to be that way. I didn't have to constantly work so hard to, to fit in. Right. Mm -hmm. And that undoing that in my own life has been a, a true gift of a journey because I've had folks who have shown me the way I've had lots of folks who have reminded me that trying to please the white frame cannot be a life goal. It just can't. So I would say so much of my anti-racist work is a product of that personal work and that mental health work, actually.
0: Yeah, I love that. It all intersects 100%. So. All So right, well, thank you so much for having such this beautiful conversation with us today.
1: Yeah, thank hopefully you. when COVID ends, we can have coffee together because I could talk to you forever.
0: Yeah, and we're all, we, I think we all live pretty close. So yay, take care um, and thank you. Yeah, thank Thank you so
2: much. It was a pleasure to be
1: here. And we will talk to you soon. Okay. (laughs) Bye. 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 Make sure you guys tune in every Monday at 6 a.m. for new podcasts. If this podcast resonated with you and you want to share it with your friends, your peers, your coworkers, please send it along. We want to further this conversation as much
0: as we can. And thank you guys for tuning in. Be kind to yourselves. We love you. Peace out.